or in John 15, I know of someone who was in a pastorate for years. Um, he was discovered having an affair. He was relieved of his position, left his church. His wife left him. He bounced around for a little while from church to church and then eventually gave up on church altogether. Um, he renounced his faith in Jesus and publicly denied the existence of his creator. That pastor was in the vineyard for quite a while. I'm not sure he was ever in the vine. Someone in the vine can do bad things, like be unfaithful to a spouse, or stop doing good things, like going to church or reading the Bible. But he or she continues to believe in Jesus. The biblical word for that is perseverance. It's an extraordinarily important word in the New Testament. And it refers to perseverance in faith. God's people not only believe in Jesus, they persevere in believing in Jesus. They may be discouraged, they may sin, they may stop believing in themselves. But they continue to believe in Jesus, stubbornly believe in Jesus, even when they're not sure why. This passage in John 15 relates to that kind of perseverance. Eleven times in John 15, Jesus speaks of remaining. Other translations use words like abiding or residing in him. That's perseverance, and we're called to it. Listen as I read John 15, starting with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Literally, it's, it will become to you, which is an interesting way of putting it. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. <clears throat> what Jesus said about the vine, the gardener, and the branches <clears throat> is a kind of extended metaphor. It's like a parable in which he uses an image. <clears throat> Excuse me. To teach us about who he is and how our relationship with him can thrive, how it can be fruitful. Like parables generally, it is instructive without being instructional. Jesus is not giving us a left brain step-by-step -step set of instructions to master. He's giving us a right brain picture or symbol to feed on and be strengthened. I mention this because it affects how we're going to approach the text. If we see this as instructional rather than as instructive, we'll force it to answer questions it doesn't raise. 
Like, can a Christian lose his salvation? Does the fire in verse 6 represent the judgment of unbelievers, as in Matthew 23? Or does it represent the judgment of believers in 1 Corinthians 3? People ask those questions, spend a lot of time. But if you put that, those questions to this text, it'll be like treating it the way a person treats a hammer when she doesn't have a screwdriver and she needs to get a screw into a board. This is the wrong text for asking those questions. There are right texts, but this isn't it. There are three characters in this parable or extended metaphor. Jesus, who is the vine. We talked about him last week. If you missed it, pick up a CD or go online and listen. His father, who is the grape farmer, and his disciples, who are the fruit-producing branches. Jesus supplies the life the branches need to bear fruit. His father cares for the branches in such a way that the life of the vine will produce good fruit in plentiful quantities. Jesus' disciples receive that life that comes from him, and they bear the fruit the Father desires. It's unwise to force the text to answer questions it doesn't raise, but it is wise to consider the questions it does. For example, how does the Father gardener care for the branches so that they produce fruit? Does this happen apart from the disciples' intention and action? Is it just automatic, or do we have a role to play in it? And if we do, what is that role? How do we play it? Those questions emerge naturally from this text, and they have a bearing on how we think and act. So let's take them in turn, starting with the role of the Father slash Gardener in all of this. First, this is his vineyard, his vine, his fruit. He takes responsibility for it. He takes action. He takes charge, just as our Heavenly Father is in charge of us. It's not the other way around. In Jesus' metaphor, the gardener takes steps to assure the production of quality fruit in large quantities. Fruit is an important concept in this passage. In fact, it's an important concept to Jesus. In this passage, he uses the word eight times. The Father wants fruit. The Father will have fruit. The Father will take the necessary steps to produce fruit. Seeing that, we might assume the Father is after fruit for his own sake. I think that's the wrong way to read this. The gardener wants the vine to be fruitful because fruitfulness is the proper fulfillment of the vine. A vine without fruit is incomplete. It's unfulfilled. Yes, the gardener wants fruit for his sake, but he also wants it for the sake of the vine, for the sake of the branches, and for the sake of everyone else. Now, let's pause and think for just a moment about what this means for us. The natural result of a Jesus follower's life is fruit. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. The natural result of a Jesus follower's life is fruit. If you're a Jesus follower, it is natural that you produce fruit. A fruitless disciple is a contradiction, an unfulfillment, a broken promise. It is in the disciple's nature to produce fruit. He or she was made for that. If the life of Jesus in us does not flow through us in a way that fruit is the result, something's wrong. Something isn't right. If we belong to Jesus, we should be fruitful. Now, we need to be clear about what fruit is. Some pastors talk about it as though it were the conversion of sinners. 
or the fruit from this evangelistic campaign. That's too narrow a definition. Uh, Some others will speak of the fruit as if it consists entirely of the virtues in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, faithful and self-control. That is part of it, for sure. But Jesus uses that word frequently and more broadly to connote the output of a person's life. Now, one person's life, their fruit might be chaos. That's what their life or what passes for their life produces all the time. For Jesus' person, the fruit they produce is the result of his energizing life in their spirit and body. And that fruit comes from Jesus' life and expresses itself in unique, nourishing, beautiful ways that make the world richer and a better place. Now, I said that if the life of Jesus doesn't flow through us in such a way that fruit is the result, something is not right. The fact is, in the world we live in, something is never quite right. That's a quote from James Taylor, in case you missed it. Our fruitfulness is frequently compromised more than we care to admit. We're not as fruitful as we should be. So what is the garden to do when we aren't fruitful? Let's make this real personal. If you're not fruitful right now, if your life is not fruitful, what will the gardener do? Jesus gives two images. One, his father, the gardener, cuts off every branch of me that does not bear fruit. That's verse 2. The Greek word the NIV translates as cuts off has the basic meaning of lifts or raises. And so it's sometimes argued that the meaning here is that he lifts the branches. Then the idea is the gardener raises unproductive branches off the ground so that they'll become healthy. That's possible. Um, That's a possible interpretation. But there are four compelling reasons why almost every major translation of the Bible does not translate it that way. And if you want to know what those are, you can come to Go Deep on Wednesday night, and we'll talk about it. Um, We won't go into it right now. But if cut off or take away or one of the other major translations best reflects what Jesus had in mind, then the gardener removes fruitless branches. This is not, I want to say again, about Christians losing their salvation. Let's not pose that question because that's not the question this passage is answering. This is a picture It's not an instruction manual. And the picture is of a gardener, the father of Jesus, making sure that the vine, his beloved son, is abundantly, profusely fruitful. Such branches, verse 6, are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But that's not the whole story. Not only does the gardener take away fruitless branches, he intelligently, wisely, and skillfully works on branches that do produce fruit, so they'll produce even more fruit. And he does this by pruning them. The verb for prune that Jesus uses here is part of a complex play on words that just doesn't translate into English. I've never seen anyone who was successful in translating what is here into English so that it reflects the Greek. Um, Cut off, that word, is the frequently recurring word iro. Appears something like 400 times in the Greek Bible. Uh, The word translated prune 
So the f- cutoff is iro. The word translated prune is cathiro. So it's a play on words. And that properly means to clean. But when it's used in the context of a vineyard, it has the idea of pruning. Jesus then completes the word play in verse 3 when he says, you are already clean with the noun form of the verb that he just used, which is cathar, rye. So being pruned or cleaned is essential to your fruitfulness. Since the gardener will have us fruitful, fruitfulness is essential to our joy. It's essential to God's glory. If we're not fruitful, we're not going to be what we could be. We won't feel the way we could feel. We're meant to be fruitful. And if we're not, the gardener will clean us, will prune us. Anyone who's ever raised grapes, I haven't, but anyone who ever has, or grape tomatoes for that matter, will know that pruning is not a one and done thing. It has to be repeated. If the vine were self-aware and could speak, it might beg the gardener not to prune it. Pruning is hard. Pruning is painful. It changes the vine. Likewise, when the father cleans or prunes us, it can be hard. It can be painful. It can change us. But the gardener knows how critical pruning slash cleaning is to our fulfillment. Without it, we will never become what we're meant to be. How does he do it? How does he prune us? Clean the suckers off. The diseased parts, the wild growth that will never bear fruit. Well, he uses various instruments. But his go-to instrument is his word. Remember what Jesus said in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, it's not that his word works magic, but it does work because his word is truth. He speaks as one who understands the way the world, which includes us, operates. So when we hear his word and respond to it, it changes us. It cleans us up. Have you had that experience where God cleans you with his word? You should have. That is a normal experience of the Christian life. The twin ideas of the word and cleaning are also combined by St. Paul. He uses them in Ephesians 5.26. When he's talking about the church, he speaks of the washing through the word. The easiest way for you to be pruned or cleaned, and you absolutely have to be pruned and cleaned, is to listen and respond to God's word. An intentional and methodical obedience to God's word is cathartic. It cleans us. And cathartic, by the way, is that same Greek word we saw before as it slid its way over into English. If we don't respond to God's word, he doesn't give up on us. You know, there have been times in my life where God has spoken to me and I have not listened. I have not responded. He's the gardener and he cares about the vine, but his word is not the only tool in his bag. Another is trial and hardship. And he knows how to use it. St. Peter writes, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various 
trials. And then goes on to speak of how these trials refine, they clean, they purify us. It's the same idea. Peter says, if necessary, but it may not be necessary if we'll learn otherwise. Whether or not we face the pruning knife is sometimes up to us. If we listen and respond to God's word, the gardener may leave the pruning knife in his bag. That's not always the case, but it is sometimes. I think people suffer more than they ever need to because they don't listen. At other times, there's no if about it. We all, like Christ, must endure trials. The thing to remember when we're in such a trial is that God will use it. He will take the sharp edge of that trial, even when we've brought on ourselves by our own foolishness or our own sinfulness, he will take it in his skilled hand and trim and prune and clean us so that we will bear more fruit. Out of our lives will come beautiful, refreshing, joy-giving fruit. Jesus goes on to tell the disciples in verse 16 that he chose them for that purpose, to bear fruit. I chose you to bear fruit. You didn't choose me. I chose you to bear fruit. He then speaks of the troubles that they'll endure of the hatred they'll bear, of painful relationships and the harassment they'll face. But even such things, as painful as they are, will only make us more fruitful if we do our part. Nothing can stop us from being prolifically fruitful if we will do our part. What's our part? It can be stated in three words. Abide in Jesus. That's our job. If we do that, we'll be okay. No matter what happens to us, we will produce abundant fruit. Christ's life will be apparent in the fruit that grows from us. Our greatest danger does not arise out of trials, but out of a failure to abide. We're so afraid of trials. We should be so afraid of not abiding. Jesus says in verse 4, remain, that's how the NIV translates the word the King James has as abide. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. To abide is to stay, to remain, or to reside. According to Jesus, that's the key to being fruitful. The the key to experiencing fulfillment. Verse 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains, abides in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now, what does that mean, to abide in Jesus? I've heard all kinds of things, many of them very mystical. Is it mystical? I don't think so. I abide in my home, and that's not a very mystical thing that I do. When I go somewhere, whether it's to town or if it's across the country, I come back to my home. 
My life is oriented around my home. That's where I eat my meals, where I sleep, where I work, where I communicate, where I relax. I know how long it takes me to get from my home to almost all the places I go. I know how long it takes to get back. I plan my life around my home. That's where I abide. To be homeless is an enormous trial. It disorients a person. It throws everything off. Some people are spiritually homeless. They are disoriented in their spirits. They are not abiding. They're not residing in Christ. And so everything for them is unsettled. You begin to abide. Note the word begin. You begin to abide when you join Christ by faith. People sometimes refer that to that as the moment of conversion. As if conversion only takes a moment. The truth is, conversion is like moving to a new house. The decision to move happens at some particular moment. We've made the decision. We've signed the paper. We're going to move. That decision takes a moment. The move does not. When we make that move to Christ, we take lots of things with us, but we leave other things behind. Things that were part and parcel of our lives before, but we know they're not right for our new home, for for Christ. So it's better to leave some things like selfishness, deceit, gossip, malice, rage. Read the Colossians and go for the first 17 verses. And you'll see lots of things that we ought to leave behind in the dumpster when we go. But even when we do that, we find ourselves taking some things we shouldn't take with us. And reaching for other things is a habit. But moving into our new home in Christ is a time for developing new habits. Um, Another word for that is a rule of life. It's time to start orienting your life around Christ. Rather than around money or distractions or friends, whatever it was oriented before Christ. One way to do that is to develop such a rule for your life. For me, I plan an overnight somewhere for prayer once a year. A full day of prayer once every three months. A half day of prayer every month. I participate with our church family in worship on Sunday mornings every week. On Wednesdays, I meet with the Go Deep group. On Fridays, I meet with a group of men. On Saturdays, I come over here to pray. Every morning, I go into my study, I close the door, and I spend an hour and a half or so praying and reading the Bible. And you see what I'm doing? I'm learning a network of roads, if you will, that will always lead me back to my home, to Christ, where I abide. When we abide in Christ, we orient our lives around him. He's our home. Everything we do is done around him, with him in mind. Sometimes we go down roads we haven't been on, and we get lost. This often happens when you move into a new community. But we find our way back to him. We order our day, our lives, all around him. The thing that will help us most in doing that is paying attention to his word and obeying it. It's foundational. 
This is verse 7. If you remain, our word, abide in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain, there it is again, in my love. Jesus' word is our GPS, it's our LPS, our life positioning system. Having and heeding his words is the key to abiding. Even as we're orienting our lives around Jesus, there are things that can trip us up. For example, we can get so focused on fruit that we forget the vine. And ironically, whenever that happens, we become fruitless. Uh, We can get it backwards and expect Jesus to move into our life, to make himself at home in our lives, even when they're cluttered and dirty and we offer him almost no space. We can expect him to be the one to move while we stay right where we are. And we give people that idea when we say things like, have you ever invited Jesus into your life? I mean, that's not all wrong, but that's not biblical language, and it's misleading. Your life's a mess. So Jesus has invited you into his life, and it's fruitful, and it's fulfilled. Let me close with these words from the songwriter Michael Card. It's as if Jesus is saying this, though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. I will be your home. I will be your home in this fearful, fallen place. I will be your home. Don't be homeless. Don't live like a transient. Abide in Christ. If you've never been to Christ, you need directions or you need help moving in, talk to me. Or talk to some friend whose life as a follower of Jesus you admire. Let's pray. Lord, you offer us such a spacious place where we can be ourselves for the first time. And often in turn, we insist that you come into our very small, cluttered, and sometimes very dirty lives and make yourself home there. Would you help us to think rightly and to respond obediently to what you say to us? Lord, as with David, set our feet in a spacious place. and Let us become who you made us to be people who are fruitful and full of joy. And do this for the sake of the one who is the vine, 
Jesus our life.